Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in East Asian Studies. I'm Ed Pulford, one of the hosts of the channel, coming to you today from a very blustery Sapporo in Japan. Today, we'll be talking to Ji Yon Jo, Associate Professor of Korean Language and Culture at the Department of Asian Studies at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, about her new book, Homing, an Affective Topography of Ethnic Korean Return Migration, which was published this year, 2018, by Hawaii University Press. Now, for anyone with an interest in Korean studies, the study of diaspora and globalization, and indeed in broader questions around transnational identities and encounters in East Asia and beyond, this is very likely to be an extremely useful text. In it, Professor Jo weaves together a wide array of fascinating, and I should say very often moving, personal encounters uh, with members of the long-standing Korean communities in China, the former Soviet Union, and the United States, members of which have moved back and there are reasons you can kind of hear uh, air quotes there in my voice, which we'll discuss perhaps during the interview, to South Korea, generally since the 1990s. Prior to presenting this material, which she draws largely from personal interviews, Professor Zhou also offers rich background on how the Chinese, Soviets, and US-Korean diaspora communities became established in the first place, and also how they came to be inclined to return to the Korean peninsula in recent decades. But this book is much more than just a historical summary or collection of interview findings, for it builds up a sophisticated set of arguments which highlight, in the author's own words, diasporic diversities and specificities among each of the Chinese, Soviet and American groups. It is through Professor Joel's tracings of parallels and divergencies between returnee diaspora experiences and the theoretical optic through which she considers these that the book's wider questions emerge to the fore as we are encouraged, again in Professor Joel's own words, to rethink legacy migration through the lens of trans-border belongings. In any case, though, these and many other matters will be dealt with at much greater length during our conversation. And so uh, uh, without further ado, I should say, uh, Ji Yong Jo, welcome to the show. Thank you for the generous introduction, and thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. I I really enjoyed the book, so uh, it's great to have the chance to talk to you today. Now, Jian, I was wondering if you could begin the interview just by telling you, uh, us a bit about yourself, uh, your background, and how you became interested in your area of study. Mm-hmm. So I'm a qualitative social scientist uh, trained in the field of educational sociology with specific focus on Asian and Korean immigration history, sociology, critical pedagogy, and heritage language acquisition and maintenance. I received a PhD from the School of Education at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill and currently teaching at the Department of Asian Studies at UNC Chapel Hill as an Associate Professor of Korean Language and Culture. And I teach courses such as Korean diasporas, Asian American experience, introductory courses on modern Korean history, society and education, and advanced Korean language courses. 
So I first became interested in the later generation Korean Americans experience of growing up in the United States when I had the opportunity to teach Korean language to college students as a teaching assistant a decade ago. So in my class and outside of the class, my students often talked about how much they had wanted to distance themselves from the Korean community and their heritage language and how much they resisted learning Korean language, right, when they were young. So, however, they all became interested in knowing more about their heritage and language when they came to college. So I was very fascinated by their stories and wanted to learn more about the social and educational context of their identity development, especially during the transition to college. So, yeah, a few years later of that, my uh, teaching experience, I, when I wanted to pursue a PhD degree, I started to search for a PhD program where I could study those issues. As you could imagine, in late 1990s, 2000, not many programs could, you know, uh, uh, support those kind of uh, research ideas. So I found a program, yeah, I found a program called Culture, Curriculum, and Change in the School of Education at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. So the program had very strong interdisciplinary and critical approach to study education, so which allowed me to pursue my interest in the identity development of uh, Korean American young adults at first. Mm-hmm. So to un- yeah. So to understand and, and then, the- so yeah, sure. Uh-huh. Please, no, please, please continue. Mm-hmm. So to understand the context of Korean Americans, I also had to study Asian American history and educational experiences. So during my graduate study, I also um, realized the local context of U.S. South is very much important factor of identity development. So by dissertation research, I interviewed Korean-American students who grew up in the U.S. South, mainly North Carolina, and interviewed uh, when they were senior in high school and again freshmen in college and wrote a dissertation titled Transforming Identity, uh, Korean-American Students in Transition from High School to College and Their Educational Experiences in the South. So, yeah. And then how did uh, that develop into the book project, the, uh, you know, the project of the book that we're discussing today, Homing, with the inclusion of uh-huh. uh, the Chinese and, and Russian uh, elements? Uh huh. So afterwards, I, um, because of my research and training in second language acquisition, especially heritage language acquisition of Korean Americans, led me to my initial teaching job at the Asian Studies Department at UNC Chapel Hill. And during my, uh, over time, I visited South Korea, right, over the summer, I became aware of the increasing a foreigner population in South Korea. I'm talking about like um, in 2000s, right? Early 2000s, which included, yeah, not only Korean Americans, uh, that also included, I also uh, observed many of my students wanted to go back and teach English in Korea too, right? But I also, a greater number of later generation Korean Chinese uh, are coming to Korea. So I was uh, also a big, concerned about the ways in which later generation diaspora Koreans are received in South Korea. 
And especially the how Korean Chinese were stereotyped in South Korea and how they were received differently from you know the way Korean Americans are received in South Korea. Yeah, I would say that's definitely something that's very noticeable there. Speaking to, uh, speaking to South <laughs> yes, Koreans, it's still about continuous, my research, right? Yeah, definitely, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, at that time I was quite familiar with the Korean American history and their uh life circumstances, but I didn't know much about the history of Korean diaspora in other parts of the world. So, I was curious about their experiences living in South Korea and also their diaspora history too. So I wanted to know more about it, and I started my project homing with uh, just simple, basic intellectual curiosity. Um, And I was particularly interested in later-generation diaspora Korean returnees rather than the first-generation returnees because later generations are migrating to Korea without much knowledge, prior knowledge, and experience in the country, but they indeed uh, migrating. So in subsequent field work in South Korea between 2009 and 2012, I started to meet later generation diaspora Koreans who had migrated to South Korea or lived in there for a long term and interviewed them. So I interviewed diaspora Koreans from the, as you um, introduced in the beginning, uh, from three major regions, the United States, China, and the Commonwealth of Independent States, right? The former Soviet blocs. Uh, they're the three major groups of returnees. So my book, yeah, Homing, is based on about 63 interviews that I conducted with, with diaspora Korean returnees. And I also met about 30 people whose works involved diaspora Korean communities and returnee communities. And I attended cultural and religious events and, uh, you know, to better understand the experience of quote and unquote return. So I would like to mention that I always use the word return with quotation marks because for the later generation diaspora Koreans, South Korea is their ancestral homeland, not their actual homeland. And yeah, they don't have any first-hand experience with the country before they move to South Korea. Although perhaps in many cases, their their backgrounds may not even have been in the southern part of the peninsula originally, right? Their, their, their ancestral villages and, and, and towns might have been at the north. Uh-huh. Yes, yes, exactly. So I decided to call the later generation diaspora Korean migrants um, uh, as a legacy migrant, uh, and their acts of moving as homing, uh, which signifies the continuous movements and connection between diaspora and their very putative, right, ancestral homeland and the migration trajectory. Right, right. Well, I think that's a great point at which to uh, to move on to discuss the book in more detail, perhaps, um, you know, with that uh, quite uh, succinct summary, I think, of the uh, the keyword in the title there. Um, so now that we understand something about where the book came from and uh, how you came to, to write it and the projects that underlay it, um, perhaps we should uh, dive right in. Um, as you explain in the, in the introduction to the book, homing is organised into two parts. 
Um, so perhaps you'd like to go ahead and uh, describe for us the uh, the first three chapters, right? Part one. Uh huh. Yeah. So uh, in the first part, uh, which I titled as Histories and Memories, I provide general overview of the three diaspora regions, the United States, China, and the Commonwealth of Independent States, and looks into the politics of citizenship and belonging and language and educational experiences. And also I include uh, the legacy migrants' own experiences, their own narratives of growing up. So each section is organized uh, somewhat similar way. I provide uh, the policies, nationality policies, and minority policies of each uh, diaspora region and how they were accepted as citizens or denied at, as a citizens in that country. And also as a, a person whose work is very much involved in heritage language maintenance, uh, my Major one of my major focus is uh, also their relationships with um, their heritage language, Korean as a heritage language, and also the language of diaspora. So perhaps you'd like to describe how how does that vary? I mean, in that first first part, you have uh, three separate chapters. Firstly, on the Chinese uh, Koreans. Secondly, on those in the Commonwealth of Independent States. And thirdly, uh, about those in the United States. Uh, it, given that language is, is, as you say, such an animating feature of your study as a whole, uh, perhaps you could you just briefly uh, sum up what is the linguistic situation and the sort of minority policies towards Koreans in each of those three places? So for Koreans uh, in China, uh, their language rights are uh, protected by the ethnic minority policies. So, you know, if you go to Yanbian Prefecture, uh, especially the city of Yanji, you will see Korean signages, right, above uh, of, uh, Chinese language. So, uh And also, I showed a picture on my cover of my book, Homing, too. That's right. That's Um, right. So, uh, and also, they could uh, get uh, their classroom instructions uh, in Korean, and they learn Chinese as uh, one of the, the, the second language or the mainstream language, right? But they, they get Chinese, uh, instruction, but the, other uh, classroom instructions, subject matters are conducted in Korean if they are to choose to uh, attend, you know, Joseonjok school, Korean Chinese schools. And um, so although the percentage of people who maintains uh, Korean as a heritage language has decreased in recent years. Uh, in general, over 80% of uh, Korean Chinese could communicate in Korean. And many older generations, their uh, dominant language is Korean, not Chinese. Although they were born and raised in China, they're multi-generation, right? Korean Chinese. So that's very much different from the... Uh, the context of uh, maintaining heritage language in the Commonwealth of Independent States, and right, and and, and in terms of the former Soviet republics, uh, where where specifically we're we talking about here? Where where are the dominant populations of, of Koreans in the former Soviet space? Yes, so um, 
you know, the the language policy during the Soviet era in itself is complicated matter. So I don't want to delve too much into it. But because of uh, the changes in policy, they were first um, encouraged to speak the ethnic language, but later they're completely forbidden to speak the language. So many uh, later generations, second and third generation, ended up forgetting uh, uh, Korean language in their diaspora. And the new generation, uh, I'm talking about uh, the, you know, uh, Korean Russians and Koreans in Kazakhstan and um, and in Sakhalin, they are relearning uh, Korean as a second language, not as a heritage language, because after 1990s, many uh, Korean missionaries and Korean governments started to establish Korean language schools. So as a community, they have forgotten uh, the Korean language in large part, but the younger generations are relearning Korean language uh, at this time. And in terms of a comparison between the uh, Soviet uh, or former Soviet and Chinese cases, do you see uh, perhaps one big difference in the relative maintenance of Korean language amongst those two communities? Would you say that had something to do with the uh, dislocation of the Soviet Koreans from the far eastern part of Russia to Central Asia, uh, which occurred during during the 1930s under Stalin, whereas the Chinese community stayed quite densely uh, pop sort of living together in one place. It, would you say that was a factor in the language maintenance situation? Oh, yes, yes, mm-hmm. yes. Um, yeah, that was a major, one of the major uh, event in um, the Korean in former Soviet Union, the 1937 deportation to Central Asia. And even after the deportation, they tried to maintain heritage language. The first thing they established is they brought some books, right? And also Korea theater was uh, kind of moved with them. And they tried to maintain, you know, the Korea theater and tried to establish a school, small community school to maintain. But later on with the Stalin era, they changed the educational policy and language policy and they were prohibited um, and some of my older generation, uh, uh, Korean Russians, they told me that they, their parents wanted to sing mm-hmm. Arirang, mm-hmm. but they couldn't. That's a, that's a popular public, Korean right? folk They were like, you know, yeah, small, <laughs> small voices. They would sing, you know, humming uh, in their house, right? Uh, so yeah, that's uh, very much different. Um, and I, I, yeah. I agree that the deportation had right, to do, right. uh, with right, uh, language right. maintenance. And how, how about the American case, moving on to yeah. Chapter 3? Yeah, so the Korean-Americans, um, you know, the, the major location of uh, heritage language education is community schools. And, you know, weekend Saturday schools or Friday night schools, and those are not supported by... Uh, by the educational department, uh, it's it's kind of a community uh, operated and supported um, institutions, right? Very informal educational institutions. So, in large part, uh, the young generation of Korean Americans grew up as seeing Korean not being very valued from the larger society. 
So if you talk to uh, Korean Americans in their 20s, late 20s and 30s and 40s, uh, they didn't get to learn Korean when they were young, especially when they lived um, outside of the metropolitan area where they don't even have uh, Korean community schools. It was very hard for them to learn. And also, uh, you get the sense that the larger community, the mainstream community, uh, do not value Korean uh, language, and they didn't want them because it's an extra burden. You have to do your all schoolwork, and then, in addition, you have to go to a Korean school in Friday. This is a relatively common diaspora experience, perhaps, amongst uh, groups with attempting to uh, sustain minority languages um, overseas. It can be, can be a challenge, I think, from that point of view. Um, yeah, so, so you found that the, yeah, the, the Korean-American situation uh, with regard to language compared somewhat, somewhat favorably, perhaps, to the uh, former Soviet case, or definitely it's considerably less maintained uh, linguistically than Chinese case, but where, where did you see it fitting in that sort of picture? Yeah, so the in terms of the maintenance rate, uh, the former Soviet um, Union countries in Central Asia and Russia and the United States, uh, the later generations maintained about, you know, a little over 10% plus minus. Um, so the later generation maintenance, uh, heritage language maintenance rate is very, very low. However, in if you look at the uh, the data, uh, census data, it'll show that the, the Korean language maintenance rate is very high because that's due to the fact that the over sixty percent of Korean Americans are first generation. Oh, I see. So Interesting. Without the flow of first generation immigrants in the United States, uh, they could have lost, you know, a lot. Severely, uh, they could, uh, but uh, they maintained because of constant flow of uh, first generation immigrants since nineteen sixty five. But for the Koreans in Commonwealth of Independent States, the flow was not possible until you know after nineteen nineties. Right, right, right. No, that that makes sense. Um, well, that's great. I mean, that's a, a really good overview of uh, that first uh, initial part and i should say that actually we've only touched on uh, a few kind of um, general issues which are discussed there by professor joe and, and really there's a huge amount more that is very rich uh, in that section um and i should really add that actually uh, based on some of uh, my own uh, research there's actually uh, a singular lack of information i i found uh, about a lot of the background to uh, Chinese and Soviet uh, Korean communities uh, in English especially. And so it's uh, tremendously useful to have all of this gathered together in, in one place. Uh, and, and I think that's a, a real contribution that the, books make, uh, that the book makes. Um, and indeed, I would also like to flag up one particular element, which I found especially uh, kind of intriguing, um, the ways that the different communities discuss their diaspora position and uh, the place that uh, they have uh, in their respective countries, there was a brilliant section on the, the metaphors which the Korean Chinese use to discuss their own uh, position in China and as that relates to uh, to Korea. So uh, look out for that uh, in chapter one. Um, in any case, um, moving on to part two now, I think, which is really where the, the real meat of the book, if you like, is, uh, is to be found and where 
I suppose a lot of the material from the interviews really comes to to shine. Um, now, Professor Joe, you begin part two by discussing how legacy Korean migrants fit into South Korean society, uh, specifically in terms of social space. Um, would you be able to begin by uh, saying something about that and how uh, chapter four uh, kind of unfolds? So um, the second part, uh, which I titled as Odyssey of Homing Traces, um, the various experiences of uh, uh, legacy migrants uh, in South Korea and their transnational continuing transnational connections and disconnections with their previous diaspora community and family in diaspora. So the second part is divided into four chapters. And first chapter is chapter four, right? Uh, looks into the overall experiences of legacy migrant migration to South Korea. And I highlight uh, their processes of finding and creating social spaces for them. And the second chapter, chapter five, focuses on the issues of citizenship, uh, juxtaposing the changing legal juridical notions of the citizenship in South Korea and legacy migrants' perspectives on citizenship and belonging in the country. And the third chapter, chapter six, explore how Korean as a heritage language influences and also influenced by legacy migrants' membership status and affective belonging both in diaspora and in South Korea. And in the following chapter, the fourth chapter, uh, I discuss how the interplay between legal juridical notions of citizenship and socioculturally mediated belonging affects family lives of legacy migrants and how and why transborder ties between legacy migrants and their kin have been maintained or broken due to their migration. So I pay special attention to the production of transborder kinship in Chapter 7. Right, right. No, that's a, that, that's great. Yeah, that 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 part uh, two really covers uh, many of the most important bases. I think it's fair to say in the the uh, Korean uh, that returnee legacy migrant returnee experiences um, in South Korea. Um, so yes, um, returning to uh, chapter four, perhaps we can begin there uh, with how um, the. Uh, social spaces that you describe are created by each of those respective communities. Um, could you perhaps describe uh, how that um, how that occurs among these migrants back in South Korea? Yeah, so, um, you know, I talk about their first encounters in South Korea and their feeling of uh, being migrated to, to South Korea. And I found uh, different people experience differently and uh, especially large numbers of uh, Koreans from CIS finding comfort in uh, Korea and they continuously use the word comfort in English to me uh, and how how much they feel like they are home even though they didn't grow up and they didn't know much but they thought living in Korea and with living amongst co-ethnics gave them the comfort. And maybe that's uh, in large part uh, due to the uh, animosity they have experienced in Central Asia republics because of their uh, ethnic priority policies um, after the fall of the Soviet Union. 
And but for other groups, especially Korean Americans and Korean Chinese, uh, their migration kind of gave them the disillusionment about you know the Korea they imagined, the the gap between the Korea they imagined and they experienced, and and. In South Korea, even though at first they didn't have much social uh, network in South Korea, uh, my interlocutors tried to find the uh, legacy migrants who came from the same region or who shares the same language through uh, uh, internet and also by attending uh, churches and uh, participating in cultural events. So, oh, and also for Chinese, Korean Chinese, uh, they kind of uh, reunited uh, with their uh, school uh, alumni. So they created their own uh, alumni association. And they told me that, you know, people are uh, flying from like uh, Busan or Jeju, if they have an uh, alumni association meeting in Seoul. So, and they told me they didn't have those uh, in, in China because they didn't need to, right? But in Korea, they wanted to reconnect with each other and share their experiences. So they're uh, creating um, uh, diaspora networks in South Korea. Too. So almost, almost a kind of diaspora within a diaspora. Almost. Yes. Uh-huh. Yes. Mm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Uh, and how about the uh, um, Korean American uh, community there? So Korean Americans are uh, largely, um, maybe it's uh, based on my uh, limited number of uh, interlocutors, but their their social networks are largely dependent on the uh, churches, religious networks, and. Um, because there are quite a few Korean American pastors who also migrated back to South Korea and they, they established their ministry in South Korea. So uh, around those uh, returning Korean American pastors, uh, Korean Americans congregate and then they do Sunday services together and activities together. So I observed that the religious uh, aspect is a strong uh, networking and, and much more so than among the uh, former Soviet or um, uh, Chinese Koreans. Does religion play a part at all in uh, that community? So Korean-Chinese communities, uh, also relig- religion plays a part uh, because Korean churches provide a lot of support to like um, legal supports and social supports for the uh, Korean-Chinese, especially for the laborers. Um, however, the difference is that they attend churches uh, on, that are established by the Korean South Korean pastors. Uh, not many Korean Chinese move to uh, South Korea to establish their churches. So that's the difference between uh, Korean Chinese and Korean American religious groups. And I found uh, Korean from CIS also uh, interacts in uh, in churches too, but. Because of their smaller number, uh, their churches are usually housed within large Korean churches. So they go to Russian services conducted 
within Korea, large Korean churches and in the Russian services, I found that uh, uh, Korean Russians and also other just uh, Russians without Korean heritage also comes together and you know worship together. So it's it's more of a diverse like language based uh, church community for Koreans. Yes. Mm-hmm. Right, right, right. No, that's very interesting. Um, and how about in terms of physical space and uh, how that relates to social space? Are these uh, society? Are these communities as they relate through religion and through, as you say, uh, school alumni networks and so on? Um, are they also living in close proximity to one another? Are there are there physical communities, you know, of of, of uh, people from the same? Uh, diaspora communities who congregate in in certain areas of of South Korean cities. Does that is that occurring amongst any of these groups? Yeah, uh, I think it it's occurring among Korean Chinese community more so than Korean uh, from CIS or Korean Americans. So, uh, for example, the Korean uh, Chinese community uh, members live uh, like southwestern part of the Seoul, you know, Daebangdong uh, uh, area and uh, and Kurodong area, and uh, they establish their own uh, uh, communities and community networks, and also you can find many stores owned by Korean Chinese uh, stores, restaurants. So they have a sizable uh Community and also the new community established near Gongguk University area, and you can see, uh, yeah, quite a few Korean Chinese restaurants, right, uh, in that community too. Uh, Korean Russians, uh, they they do have a s- small pocket of places, um, but in that uh, places too, they are kind of integrated with other Russian communities. And then, yeah, and then they they have uh, operates or works at Russian restaurants and uh, small stores. Too. I see. And and Korean Americans are there clusters of uh, yeah they they uh, they tend to be spread out <laughs> in their living spaces. Oh, and one um, interesting space to that. Koreans from CIS created is actually one space in Gwangju. Uh, yeah, so Gwangju has uh, uh, Korean from CIS. Uh, they, they live in close proximity, and they have their own radio station. They have their own like business network, and they have like co-ops. So Gwangju is a, a kind of uh, one of the larger community that Koreans from CIS established. I see, I see. Oh, that's very interesting. So there are these kind of, uh, in, in provincial cities as well outside Seoul, there are concentrations of some of these groups. Um, well, uh, that's, uh, that's a, a great um, kind of encapsulation of, of how the uh, Korean communities, the diasporic community, Korean communities themselves are forging uh, both social and physical and other kinds of networks um, within uh, South Korea itself. Perhaps we can move on now to uh, talk about Chapter 5 and uh, the citizenship regimes and, and how um, their relationships with the state uh, kind of operate, uh, because I think perhaps that's a key uh, component within 
how their social networks evolve, right? In terms of their relationship with uh, the South Korean state often has a decisive bearing perhaps on the way that they forge communities among themselves and, and self-organize. Uh, so perhaps you could say a little bit a bit about Chapter 5. Mm-hmm. So um, in Chapter 5, I provide background of how uh, citizenship laws have uh, changed uh, over the last uh, two decades uh, in response to the growing uh, overseas uh, community, growing foreign migrants, especially the diaspora returnees, which I call legacy migrants. And uh, it is very contested. It has been very contested field because at first uh, they didn't want to include Koreans and Koreans from CIS into the more uh, easier way to pathway to Korean citizenship and uh, uh, permanent residency. And through the social activism that were supported by, uh, again, the activist Korean pastors, uh, they kind of, uh, you know, they were included, Koreans from China and diaspora Koreans PAS were included in the new uh, Nationality Act and Overseas Act. However, uh, they created uh, two different tracks. So if you are engaged in uh, low-skilled labor, you could get H-2 visa, right? But if you're getting uh, college education, especially the, uh, you know, master's or doctorate degree, you're eligible to get F-4 visas. So they kind of uh, created two different tracks of uh, visa status and so did these this visa regime uh, and and ultimately citizenship regime uh, was this something that had its origins for all uh, as you say except all overseas korean uh, communities apart from the cis koreans back in the 90s in south korea or what what were the kind of origins of this uh, returnee legacy migrant uh, visa and citizenship regime yeah so it it it, it um is a late 1990s product, um, but it deemed as a co- unconstitutional. So now they have uh, amended the Overseas Korean Act. I see, I see. So now it applies equally to all of the uh, overseas Korean communities, uh, the, the, the returnee legacy migrants that you're discussing. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. I see. And so uh, what, what are the sort of uh, stories that, that you encountered among uh, the other groups of uh, returnee Koreans, the Chinese and, and uh, American Koreans, is with regard to citizenship, with regard to their aspirations to attain citizenship, and so on. Despite the uh, the hypes of you know g- giving uh, legal citizenship to to uh, diaspora Koreans or not, the actual uh, number of people who uh, change their citizenship to South Korean citizenship is very low compared to other uh, centers of the migration like United States and Canada. And I found out uh, the diaspora legacy migrants are kind of uh, looking in, not only the South Korean government wants to control and uh, exercise their uh, mechanism to include and exclude legacy migrants, legacy migrants themselves as an agent of their own life, they um, 
some of them did not even want to get a uh, Korean citizenship, even if even though they are qualified to do. Right. So I I divided them into like five groups of uh, of uh, citizens, uh, depending on their status and also orientation. Uh, an attitude towards Korean citizenship, and I divided them. As, I I uh, categorized them as precarious citizens who wanted to get uh, working rights or even the citizenship, but they're totally excluded from the uh, the citizenship category. And contingent citizens who uh, consider South Korean citizenship as a stepping stone to. Uh, move to other countries such as Europe or especially United States. And the permanently temporary citizens are uh, people, especially Korean Americans, who kind of came to Korea as to teach English or to have a, a better job opportunity, but who couldn't uh, advance themselves more than that. They were kind of... Uh, stay in play too in their career trajectory. And even if they come to the United States, they may not establish, they may not be able to establish a professional career in the United States due to the fact that they stay in Korea for the extended period of time. And then the flexible citizens are citizens who is highly qualified and highly capable, highly educated, uh, who's not really attached to a single nation, who, who, whose trajectory of migration is open very widely to, to United States, to their diaspora land and in South Korea, because they are very highly demanded uh, in the market, job market. And then the yeah, community citizens are those who want to make South Korea as their home and stay there, although they want to make their heritage, mm -hmm. or diasporic heritage. And among the three different uh, communities, which categories did you find each one most fit into? Or were there, were there more of uh, one group of Koreans who were seeking to settle permanently? In terms of, obviously, this categorization cross-cuts uh, each of the three different um, uh, sort of national origins of the communities you're, you're discussing. But was it the case that, say, there was a larger proportion of CIS Koreans who were interested in permanent settlement or a larger proportion of uh, Chinese Koreans who were interested in South Korea as a stepping stone elsewhere? Or did you find that there was any particular weighting in that direction or, or was it quite distributed across the board? It was very much mixed uh, in that, but but I could see some tendency of uh, uh, Koreans from CIS are more committed citizens. And the highly educated Korean Chinese and Korean Americans are more flexible citizens, uh, but somewhat like uh, college educated uh uh, and especially the English teachers of Korean Americans are usually falling to the permanently te temporary citizens. Okay, well, perhaps now uh, we can move on to the topic, which you know I think perhaps is is maybe closest to your heart of all of the uh, various uh, kind of uh, subject areas that you cover in this second part, namely the uh, uh, co subject covered in chapter six, uh, the language question. Um, and so. Um, Perhaps you could could uh, yeah introduce us to uh, your sixth chapter 
shifting affective linguascapes. Uh-huh. Yes. So as a title, uh, it's, I think the title is self-explanatory. The ling- linguascapes in South Korea is shifting because of uh, the legacy migration and also the foreign resident, increasing number of uh, foreign residents in South Korea. Mm-hmm. Uh, would you would you mind just saying us uh, clear, clarifying a little what you mean by linguascapes? Is that this this term comes from uh, Arjuna Padurai? Is that correct? You, you're borrowing yeah, from his, his yeah. idea. Could you, could you just fill out that idea for us a bit? Yeah. So the linguascape is uh, the uh, the reservoir or uh, daily interaction action of the the language incorporated in a person's uh, uh, environment. So it could be linguascape, uh, could, for the South Koreans, was mainly Korean language before, uh, of the, before they experienced, uh, foreign, uh, residents, increasing number of foreign residents. But now with the growing number of Chinese, uh, tourists and also uh, migrants from other countries, uh, the linguascapes, the languages that South Koreans are exposed to or legacy migrants are exposed to are diversified and multiplied. And um, that, in a sense, uh, it's kind of your uh, landscape of language or your language environment uh, is kind of a linguascape. So, uh and... I wanted to kind of challenge and problematize the South Koreans, the dominant notion of uh, Korean language in this chapter and how uh, their expectations to legacy migrants are sometimes unrealistic. Mm, mm. And because of their co-ethnic status, Legacy migrants are expected to speak uh, Korean more fluent than other foreign migrants. Right, and 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 language is language seen language is seen as a specific badge of of Korean belonging. Is that right? Yes, the identity, right? And and while experiencing those uh, dominant pressure. Uh, Korean Chinese and Korean Americans, especially, they kind of challenge. Uh, South Koreans' mainstream notion of what Korean language should be, right? So in the second section of the chapter six, I introduce um, the claims and narratives of uh, Korean Chinese and Korean Americans and the language uh, that South Koreans speaks and uses are uh, lacking authenticity uh, because Korean Chinese claims that they maintained more uh, antique uh, form, the more original form of Korean language in their diaspora, better than South Koreans whose language has been contaminated. That's the word they used, contaminated by all the English, right? And the Korean Americans will argue that, huh, the English that South Koreans are using are kind of uh, Konglish. It's not like real English, you know. The, the, the Americans would use uh, uh, shampoo and conditioner, not shampoo and rinse, right? So those kind of uh, differences. And and so, so the using of uh, English, uh, the 
overuses of English among South Koreans are criticized by both Korean Chinese and Korean Americans, and to a certain extent, Koreans from CIS too, that uh, even though they can speak Korean, they cannot uh, understand South Koreans sometimes because of the overuse of the English. Right, right. Yeah, I've Koreanized seen, English, I should say. You see in the bookshops in uh, in Yanbian, the, the Korean area of Northeast China, you see dictionaries designed especially for Korean Chinese people of English words that are used in Korean. Uh, oh, really? Yeah, uh-huh. I noticed these yeah. in bookshops. Um, uh-huh. but, but That's would, interesting. Would you say that this uh, kind of argument, uh, you know, by Korean Chinese that they've preserved a sort of original traditional form of Korean and then in turn by Korean Americans that they're using true English and that Koreans are, uh, are butchering it. Um, would, do those come in response to a specific kind of um, impression they have of how welcoming Korea is or what? what why do they? Why are they pushed to sort of come up with these narratives? It is uh, uh, very much related to the uh, discrimination they have experienced uh, because of their accents and the way they use uh, Korean language in South Korea. So I see that as a kind of defensive uh, maneuvers of uh, they incorporated while living in Korea. Uh, however, they are not like rejecting Korean language completely. Uh, they recognize the increased value of uh, knowing Korean uh, language in their future job market and also everyday Korean lives. So th- in their actual lives, they incorporate their Korean language and they want to learn more about Right, they are not like completely denying to learn Korean language. They they want to learn. But however, uh, in on the face of uh, discrimination, they uh, yeah, activate these defensive maneuvers, and they they would they would claim that the Koreans are not using the authentic Korean language. Right, right, right. No, that 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 makes a lot of sense. Yeah, that's interesting. And and actually, there was one other thing from chapter six that I wanted to flag up because it's a curious uh, little additional element. Um, the CIS Koreans, you say. Uh, essentially developed their own language in their diaspora community, this language Koryomal. Um, so uh, I was just wondering if you could explain a little more about what Koryomal was and, and uh, what, what effects it had when uh, people who spoke it arrived in South Korea and uh, tried to use it. Yeah, so Koryoma was emerged from, you know, diaspora community. It's not completely unrelated to the Korean language, but it uh, shows the how Korean language they used uh, have been uh, changed, right, uh, due to the uh, influence of the Russians in their daily lives and also different regions of the Korean language. First, uh, Koryomar was heavily influenced by the diaspora Koreans who uh, migrated from the northeastern part of uh, Korean Peninsula. But later, uh, they were joined by uh, Koreans from southeastern part or southern parts uh, coming to Russia. So they had uh, language interaction uh, between two different dialects of Korean and plus uh, Russians, right? So they actually, uh, uh, you know, changed their uh, last names to to look more like 
Russian last names. So like uh, last name Ma is Magai. So they add I, right? A-Y or Gai, G-A-Y to their last names. And then, you know, kind of um, lossified their last names. And their uh, pronunciation has been uh, changed a little bit. So... The all the hybrid forms of uh, language interaction created Koryomar, and they thought because they used Koryomar in their diaspora, they thought Koryomar is the Korean language, right? But after they uh, visit or come to uh, South Korea, they realize that Koryom, you can't really, you know, you you have you can communicate basic knowledge, but Korea, South Koreans would experience a hard time understanding them, and also they would uh, have a hard time understanding South Koreans as well. Sure, sure. Oh, that's uh, one of many absolutely fascinating details that uh, unfold in that language chapter. Um, and then finally, uh, before getting to the conclusion, um, perhaps uh, you can say something about Chapter 7, the kinship-focused chapter, because this is also uh, really a key strand in uh, the, the, the sustenance and, and existence of uh, many of these uh, legacy migrant communities. It was a bit hard, heartbreaking <laughs> chapter to to write about because uh, because of the the migration, uh, many legacy migrants um, had experienced uh, separation from their families, uh, and many times it's a very long-term separation like that goes over decades of separation from family members, especially uh, for Korean Chinese, right? And also even even after they are reunited um, in South Korea, uh, they find that they, they can't relate to their uh, parents or children as much as they wanted to because uh, they they have uh, huge affective ruptures, right? Uh, they, they experienced. And also I talk about, you know, the notion of caring, how uh, children who are left in diaspora were materially cared by their migrating uh migrated uh, parents but they were lacking of the the emotional caring from the caretaker in um in their diaspora and i wanted to highlight that still many uh legacy migrants live in separated life from their um family members and and even their children for example the uh, migrants from CIS because of the, the financial burden to bring their family members to South Korea because the living cost is so high. They chose to live separately and then just send remittances to Central Asian uh, region, their country. I see. So they get kind of stuck in situations which keep them divided. I see. Yeah. And as you say, I mean, there are a great many very heartbreaking stories um, and also very moving stories of how committed uh, mothers or related relatives remain to their uh, children or offspring or vice versa um, 
after years and years of separation and the questions that are asked there about whether the choice to move and leave a child behind, for example, in China was the correct one. Um, and really, yeah, I think uh, I would point listeners towards uh, this chapter of the book uh, because there's a, there's a tremendously kind of, there's a tremendous amount of rich material in there. Um, I was wondering actually methodologically, uh, and this is perhaps a late point to be asking about such a thing, um, when it came to eliciting some of these more uh, perhaps delicate and personal stories, um, did you apply any particular sort of techniques in, in, during interviews? And were you, were you uh, specifically looking for these stories or did they emerge relatively uh, synthetically or, 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 or oh, sorry, uh, relatively naturally? How did, uh, how did that ha- happen? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, uh, my interview was very, you know, semi-structured interview. I opened it up to, to the interlocutors to talk about their experiences. However, um, and also, you know, it is very challenging to build the trust within a very limited time, right? And so I usually start my interviews by introducing myself and my experiences of living in the United States as an immigrant and as a minority, and I believe uh, my experience, they kind of relate to my experience. So I opened up myself a little bit and then move on to explaining about the research and why I am interested in hearing about their stories. So, And also I assure them of protecting their pri- privacy and maintaining the confidentiality of the information because many of them, especially those who... Uh, were once uh, undocumented migrants, still they gained uh, the legal status in South Korea. They kind of have uh, uh, remained fear of the South Korean system uh, due to their past experiences. So, so I found it is very important for for them for to to make it clear that. Um, this will be all confidential, and I'm going to use pseudonyms for all their stories, so you know no one can identify them, right, in their real life, other than uh, myself. Uh, and you know, I felt very honored and fortunate that my interlocutors opened their hearts to me, uh, sometimes in a very, very intense way. And I sense that many of them felt connected, as I mentioned, to with my experiences as migrants living overseas. And, and they, I also sense that they had uh, a stories. All of them had uh, great stories and sometimes heartbreaking stories. But they didn't have chance to tell anyone candidly even to their families, because in many times the family members are often too entangled in their stories and too, you know, co-implicated in their everyday lives. They couldn't even tell to their uh, family members. And also they kind of had some reservations to tell their stories to uh, South Koreans, because uh, even to South Korean researchers, because they felt that you know, the system is there. The, the South Korea itself is a dominant system uh, that has uh, discriminated them, right, in South Korea. So uh, I think my position as a, as a Korean-American researcher kind of helped me to get connected with them. Absolutely, yeah. And that comes across really clearly. And I think uh, that's a great point at which to sort of uh, move towards clear uh, wrapping up. Um, I should say, yes, that, that these 
really fascinating stories uh, about all manner of different aspects of the rich experiences and, and, and lives and uh, sort of improvisational efforts and, and, and linguistic strategies and uh, social network creation and so on that are there uh, amongst all of these different communities. They all really uh, shine through throughout the text. So I would encourage all uh, listeners to go out and buy it right away if they haven't done already and uh, and get reading. Um, and so, yes, well, all that remains, Gion, uh, is to say uh, we've taken up an awful lot of your time and thank you very much. Um, before you go, perhaps you could say something about what you're working on currently. Uh, this is the New Books Network's uh, traditional final question. Uh, so what current projects do you have in the pipeline and uh, what, are you, what are you working on at the moment? So I'm currently working on a project about diaspora Korean cinema, which encompasses cinema directed by diaspora Korean auteurs in the United States, Japan, China, and other parts of the world. So if homing was my attempt to understand the lives of uh, uh, diaspora and written migration through personal narratives, my current project is to learn about them through the cinematic works of uh, diaspora Korean auteurs on diaspora subjects. So in addition to the diaspora Korean cinema project, I have two other concurrent writing and research projects. Uh, One is on educational issues of foreign marriage migrants in South Korea, and the other is on transnational consumptions and identities of multi-generation Korean-Americans. Well, that sounds absolutely fascinating, and uh, I look forward a lot to reading the results uh, of those projects when they come out. Um, In any case, uh, Dion, Professor Joe, I really want to thank you a great deal again for appearing on the show today. Um, It was great talking to you, and uh, I wish you all the best. Thank you so much. It was really uh, nice talking to you.